Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Episode 8 Children of Light and Darkness. Imagine waking up in the middle of a dream in a cold sweat, confused, knowing you are not alone. Two beings hover over you, watching you intently. That's why they call them the Watchers. They're surveilling us at all times. You look to the left and stare into the face of a viper, whose snake head sits atop the body of a young man, sporting brightly colored clothing. Despite the technicolor dream coat, a shifting darkness, almost like a mist, hangs about him. The opposing watcher is radiant, almost blinding. You venture a, what's going on, guys? In unison, they answer, we have been made masters and rule over all the sons of men. Which of us do you choose? Now, I'm not describing any kind of personal psychedelic experience or an awful dream, but instead a text known as the Vision or Testament of Amram. It was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, papyri fragments from a library that belonged to a community of radical, apocalyptic Jews known as the Essenes, or so most scholars believe. Rolled up with the Dead Sea Scrolls are hundreds of yards of scandal and controversy. Amram is not just some nobody. He is the father of Moses and Aaron, the political and religious leaders of the children of Israel when they are freed from their bondage in Egypt, as described in the book of Exodus. And so the fragments of this vision show us how the world of human affairs is being managed or mismanaged by a schizophrenic angelic bureaucracy. There's a major tension here in the middle of this action I've been describing. The angels or watchers rule over humanity, enacting a struggle between angels and demons. Yet in this instance, they pause in their struggle and demand that this one puny mortal, significant as he may be, decide his own fate. It's almost as if the watchers were saying, we control everything, but just this once, we'll let one of you in on the secret. Amram, still intimidated by Snakeface, asks the other bright angel, who is he? This other angel responds with three names, Belial, Melchilrashea, and the Prince of Darkness. Boy, the devil seems to be creeping a lot closer, doesn't he? But before we rush into the rather bewildering world of the Dead Sea Scrolls demonology, we need to set up some basic facts about the context. In 1947, as the British mandate was about to expire in Palestine, a young shepherd named Muhammad Ed-Dib was exploring some caves in Qumran, which is in the West Bank, and came upon a set of scrolls. This find was confirmed in 1949 by a Belgian army officer in the UN Armistice Observer Corps. By the time scholars were on the scene, it was clear that something tremendous had been discovered. The oldest extant copies of Hebrew Bible scripture, as well as evidence for the existence of a sectarian community of Jews whose existence had previously only been attested to in the writings of Philo, Pliny the Elder, and Josephus. The papyri fragments from over 800 separate documents date from the 2nd century BCE to the 1st century CE. The texts found included books of the Bible, 
pseudoepigrapha like Enoch and Jubilees, which we discussed last time, and other works that were not unique to the community. But there are also texts that originate from within the sectarian community itself. This difference matters for considering the ideas that emerge from the scrolls. Some of them were shared broadly with other Jewish communities, while others were uniquely held by the sectarian community. The Essene community was ascetic, owned goods in common, and saw themselves as set apart from the broader swath of late anti-Judaism, not to mention the pagan nations that scrapped over the land of Israel as if it were a fumbled football. It's difficult to be certain about the exact historical sequence of the Essene community at Qumran. One widely accepted version of the timeline goes like this. It begins with the rise of the Hasidic or militantly pious Jews in opposition to Hellenization in Palestine at the start of the 200s BCE, as narrated in 1st Maccabees. The Essenes developed as a sort of offshoot from this pious, militant section of Judaism, as the product of a rivalry between this person who gets known as the wicked priest and the teacher of righteousness. As we discussed in our dualism episode, apocalypticism often goes together with political marginalization. The Essenes were led by this teacher of righteousness, a Zadokite priest, whose identity remains pretty mysterious. The Zadokite family was a family of priests from whom the high priest of the Temple of Jerusalem had been selected for centuries. Their dominance of the office was interrupted after one of the high priests, Onias III, began promoting the Hellenistic culture of the Seleucid Greek overlords. We can be a little sure about the identity or identities of the wicked priest, also known as the liar, the scoffer, or the spouter of lies. These epithets remind me of someone, like the father of lies. But according to the reference in the scrolls, this wicked priest ruled Israel, quote, built his city of vanity with blood, committed abominable deeds in Jerusalem, and defiled the temple of God. Taken together, we get a picture of a powerful religious and political leader. And just to back up for a second, the scrolls refer to the, this all happening in the Age of Wrath, which scholars have reconstructed as the period in Jewish history when the Jews were confronted with Greek political domination and cultural hegemony, known as Hellenization. The Maccabean revolt in the 2nd century BCE against Antiochus Epiphanes IV took place when the Zadokite high priest promoted the Hellenization of Jewish religion and culture. But not all the Zadokites were Hellenists. Many took part in the Maccabean revolt. What's so interesting about the identity of the wicked priest is, in all likelihood, he's one of the Maccabees, one of these pious Jewish patriots who topples Seleucid domination of Israel. One of them, Jonathan, succeeds Judas as the leader of the Hasmonean dynasty, which is another name for the family of Maccabees who initiated the rebellion against the Seleucids, in 161 BCE. Both Judas and Jonathan, brothers, were warriors as well as priests, and both perished in these conflicts. The Maccabean rebellion and the Maccabees' rededication of the Temple of Jerusalem is still commemorated in Hanukkah in December, making them national religious heroes. So it's very striking how the Essenes looked upon Jonathan as a defiler of the temple. We remember him and his family today as restorers of temple worship, washing away the desolating abomination perpetuated by Antiochus and Epiphanes. It seems probable that the origin of the wicked priest epithet lies with Jonathan's route to the high priesthood of the temple. He was endowed with this title by an illegitimate usurper of the Seleucids, again, salt in the wound to the Zadokite conservatives. And Jonathan himself was not a Zadokite of Zadokite lineage. 
he literally received the pontifical vestments that were the great sign of this office from this usurper, Alexander Balas. At the same time, he was coming into conflict with the Essenes' teacher of righteousness person, eventually driving the dissident priest and his followers out of Jerusalem into Damascus, out into the wilderness eventually, harassing and persecuting him and his community, and possibly even killing him personally. We can see the sequence of division, persecution, and then the anticipated apocalyptic vengeance for these outrages in the community's commentary on the prophet Habakkuk in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In episode two, we discussed how Antiochus's desolating abomination in the temple basically initiated the genesis of the character we know as the devil today, creating a hard link between political power and satanic deception. In this moment, political rulers went from being mere pawns of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to apocalyptic antagonists. We see this playing out again with the character of the wicked priest, who ironically was one of Antiochus's moral enemies as a member of the Maccabean Hasidim. It's amazing how smoothly the mantle eschatological enemy can slide from the shoulders of one leader to another. The epithets of liar, scoffer, spouter of lies, sound pretty similar to the father of lies, as I mentioned before. Yet, as far as I can tell, there is no equation of the archdemon of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Bilial, with this wicked priest, though he is spoken of as one of Bilial's own, a sort of shorthand for all of the fallen cosmic and political foes of the Essene sect. It makes me wonder if this high priest, wicked priest, and archdemon combo function in an analogous way to the distinction between the devil and the antichrist that will develop much later in Christian biblical interpretation and political theology. What's striking about that comparison is how in the Middle Ages and the Reformation, the link between the antichrist and the pope, the high priest of Catholicism, becomes a really important idea. And so we see this sort of proximity between ideas of, of deception, evil, and priestly caste and identity becomes a really important idea about the personification of evil and the demonic. The ideology of this community centered on a theme developing across earlier biblical literature, the idea of a series of covenants or treaties with God. The Essenes understood themselves to be bound to the final covenant before an apocalyptic catastrophe, an eschatological final battle, and the eventual renewal of creation. They were the last true remnant of Israel, Israel a microcosm, with all the attendant social divisions of priests, Levites, and a laity, who themselves were divided into 12 tribes. It's not unlikely that no more than 200 or so Essenes were living in the Qumran settlement at a time, judging by the number of graves, something over a thousand. According to Geza Vermes, prominent scholar of this literature, the Essenes studied Torah in the wilderness as a way to, quote, atone for the land and its wicked men for whom they were to nourish an everlasting hatred. The rules of the community were strict, initiation was difficult, penance was harsh, lifetime expulsion was always a very real possibility. It's not entirely clear whether they were celibate there are a few references to women and children in the documents and only a handful of graves for women and children buried near the site. There were other Essenes, it seems, who lived off-site 
in Jerusalem and other places as laity, and these were permitted to marry. Other rituals include purification by water, which was a common regular practice, particularly before meals. The community's values revolved around the priestly leadership's interpretation of the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and the ensuing commandments given in Exodus and Deuteronomy, their divinely inspired interpretation of the, of the biblical prophets, as well as the community separation from the children of darkness who opposed the authentic remnant of Israel. And this included Jews who did not subscribe to the interpretations of the law and the prophets that the Zadokite priest leaders of the Essenes maintained. It also included foreign nations. This external dualism of those who were inside as children of light and those who were outside as children of darkness worked in tandem with an internal version. The monastic sectarians were to be taught expertise in discerning the influence of what they called the two spirits, one of truth, the other of falsehood. I mentioned last week that the hypothesis of earlier Hebrew and Aramaic versions of Enoch and Jubilees was eventually verified through the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essene community at Qumran seems to have regarded these apocalyptic texts very highly, freely adapting them for their demonologies. For example, the watches appear throughout the scrolls. In what is called the Damascus document, which is one of the few texts from the Dead Sea Scrolls that was found previously before the discovery in Qumran in 1948-47, uh, there is an account of the watchers used to illustrate the responsibility that comes with possession of free will. According to this document, the watchers fall through the stubbornness of their own hearts, as do their offspring, who were as tall as cedar trees and whose bodies were like mountains. A really interesting point brought out by the scholar Neil Forsyth is that in the Targum, or the Aramaic translation and paraphrase of the Hebrew Bible, there is a connection drawn between the idea of the Nephilim, the giants, and their fall, the Nafal. And this becomes this metaphor for how the giants, the Nephilim, fall from grace in this sort of, in this sort of metaphor for, for a morality of choice. Possession of the freedom of the will does not make life easy. Indeed, it means that one's psyche is a battlefield between angels and demons or in the words of the sectarians, the prince of light and the angel of darkness. This theme gets developed further in a treatise that is edited into the community rule, known as the treatise on the two spirits. It sort of represents at once a basic teaching on the opposition between the godly within the community and the apostates and pagans outside of it, but also the internal opposition between the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. God appoints both spirits to be present within the human even as the human was created to govern earth. This might seem strange to us, needlessly complicated. How many systems of administration do we need? But the sectarian scribes weren't anticipating a 21st century comment thread. All the same, it's very striking that God creates both spirits, but loves the one and hates the other. To our eyes, this seems hardly becoming of an omnipotent, omniscient, benevolent deity. But perhaps the truth of divinity lies in the pettiness, Power does what it wills, and the powerless have no authority or means to demand an accounting. Just ask Job. The sectarian sources of the Dead Sea Scrolls speak of two lots, two opposing camps, each comprised of mortal and angelic beings struggling for dominion. The external struggle anticipates the internal between virtue and vice. Even for those who are elect, a part of the children of light, 
Struggle is a constant presence in their lives for maintaining their participation in the divine covenant. This uncertainty represents a particular tension between predestination, the idea that God has ordained everything, including one's moral qualities, from the beginning, and the weight of responsibility emphasized in the community's ethical thought. This might seem logically inconsistent to contemporary understanding, but it seems that the mysterious paradox of human freedom and divine determinism was not a stumbling block in Essene thought and practice, at least as far as we can tell. One of the ways it could be resolved was through the anticipation of an eschatological final battle between the forces of good and evil, when the remaining impurity of the elect will be washed away by the spirit of truth. This coincides with the complete annihilation of the wicked angels and those in their thrall, uniting and completing both the internal and external dualisms. But we still need to get something straight. Who's causing all the trouble? Bilial, Bilial, Bilial. This theme appears all over the scrolls and later in a Pauline epistle in the New Testament. What are we to make of this character and what is his role in the various dualisms and apocalypses of the Dead Sea Scrolls? It's important to remember that Bilial isn't actually named in the treatise on the two spirits. He's kept to the external realm. Internal spiritual temptation can be seen as stemming from the watchers, as in the Song of the Sage. Quote, And I, the master, proclaim the majesty of God's beauty to frighten all the spirits of the destroying angels, the spirits of the bastards, the demons, Lilith, the howlers, a whole rogues gallery who, quote, strike suddenly to lead astray the spirit of understanding and to appall their heart. In the age of the domination of wickedness, in the appointed times for the humiliation of the sons of light, in the guilt of the ages of those smitten by iniquity, not for external destruction, but for the humiliation of sin. It's this idea of the bastards that clues us in that the Watcher's legend still lives on and is being used to explain internal temptation, a temptation that is suited for punishing and humiliating human beings on account of their sins. And for this insight, I'm indebted to Miriam Brand's podcast, Understanding Sin and Evil, which she goes even deeper on Second Temple Judaism and its ideas of sin and evil, as you might have guessed from the title. Bilial isn't mentioned as part of that moral economy of humiliation and punishment. Instead, he appears as an external threat, though one who has been appointed by God for mysterious purposes. This archdemon does not only appear in histories and prophecies, the Essene liturgy that sort of made up the ritual structure of daily life, is littered with curses directed against him and his lot. The ritual life of the community made their spiritual enemy constantly present and relevant to their studies and preparation for eschatological war. The vision of Amram that I started the pot off with provides us with a face-to-face beating with Bilial, but we learn about the denouement of his story in the war scroll. Rather than focusing on internal struggle, the war scroll goes cosmic. As you might have guessed, the war scroll describes the final battle against the forces of evil. Hymns sung by the Essenes describe the build-up to this final confrontation by comparing Bilial's domination of the earth to the spreading waters of the flood. The floods of Bilial burst forth onto hell itself when the depths of the abyss are in turmoil. This image of Bilial as being part of the flood or the final destruction of the earth takes us back to some of the early episodes where it seems that God's struggle against the waters of chaos are an important precursor for later ideas about the struggle between good and evil. The forces of evil described in the war scroll simultaneously stand for foreign domination by the Ketum, 
which can connote the Hellenistic empires or eventually the Roman Empire, as well as the demonic forces that are always lurking in the background. The War Scroll and related documents are not merely stories or prophecies. They include incredible, intricate detail on battle formations and the ritual scripts of the high priests who spiritually pump up their warriors, infusing them with divine wrath. For example, soldiers' trumpets have slogans like formations of the divisions of God for the vengeance of his wrath on the sons of darkness. That's one, that's one uh, utterance there. Or reminder of vengeance in God's appointed time. These are all painted on the trumpets according to the war scroll. At moments deemed propitious, the priests blow the six trumpets of massacre to ensure the gory demise of their enemies. Different war engines, or advancing towers as they're named here, have the names of archangels emblazoned on them. You get the sense that the angels and demons are fighting through the conventional military battles or right above them in the ether. And I'll just quote a bit from the war scroll. Valiant warriors of the angelic hosts are among our numbered men, and the hero of war is with our congregation. The host of his spirit is with our foot soldiers and horsemen. They are as clouds, as clouds of dew covering the earth, as a shower of rain shedding judgment on all that grows on the earth. And we can sort of see this hero of war as maybe suggesting the Archangel Michael. Even as the priests are crucial, like Moses and Aaron, for making sure that God blesses their warriors, their persons and garments must stay clear of the blood and carnage that their trumpet blasts and, and prayers create. Purity is of absolute value. The action of the war scroll plays out in a hebdomadic structure, that is, in the pattern of seven, mapping onto the sequence of days in the Genesis creation story in the seven days of the week. For three of these days, or rather spans of years, the forces of evil, the lot of Bilial, triumph. So there's, there's a moment where the, the bad guys get to, to win for a bit, building up the narrative tension. While in the other three, the pure fighting remnant of Israel, superintended by the archangel Michael, hold the field. It requires a divine tiebreaker in the seventh day to push history over the finish line. The whole sequence lasts 40 years and is initiated when the ranks of the Essenes begin to dwell with a wave of young recruits. When the appointed time arrives, the Essenes drive the enemy out of Jerusalem and occupy it. In the seventh year of the struggle, temple worship is restored. The rest of the 33 years are apportioned out for defeating this enemy or that, culminating with the spectacular defeat of the Ketim or the Romans, and the destruction of Biliel and his lot, evil angels and reprobate humans. The fighting during this time only happens during 29 of the 33 years, with four sabbatical years being set aside. The sectarians at Qumran often identify themselves with the authentic remnant of Israel, referred to by Isaiah and St. Paul, but the war scroll makes clear that there will be no remnant of Bilyals left after the Armageddon. This angelic ethnic cleansing corresponds to the emphasis on ritual purity and orthopraxy throughout the war scroll. All of creation will be cleansed in proportion to the ritual purity of the community and its priestly praxis. In episode 3, we discuss different forms of dualism and how they show up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The War Scroll seems to be thoroughly cosmic. That is, the universe is divided between the Children of Light and the Lot of Bilial, and eschatological. The division will be erased or overcome at the end of time. 
We saw a psychological and ethical dualism earlier in the treatise on the two spirits in which the human being has to overcome the prompting of the evil spirit or angel and side with the good. Often this was enabled and aided by allegiance to the divine law given to Moses. I wanted to note also traces of what I would describe as a metaphysical dualism in the War Scroll. Metaphysical in the sense of an opposition between being and nothingness. I want to flag this right now because it's important for later Christian reflections on evil, particularly the theory of evil as privation or lack of being. Consider these two passages, quote, For they are a congregation of wickedness, and all their works are in darkness. This is obviously the lot of Bilyal being described here. They tend toward darkness. They make for themselves a refuge in falsehood, and their power shall vanish like smoke. All the multitudes of their community shall not be found. Damned as they are, all the substance of their wickedness shall quickly fade like a flower in the summertime. And be strong and fear not, for they tend toward chaos and confusion, and they lean on that which is not and shall not be. To the God of Israel belongs all that is and shall be. He knows all the happenings of eternity. This is the day appointed by him for the defeat and overthrow of the prince of the kingdom of wickedness. Even as God's forces, commanded by Michael, and comprised of angels and Essene sectarians, struggle against political and cosmic enemies such as these, the passages I just read suggest that there is something superficial about the strength of these foes. The substance of their wickedness shall quickly fade like a flower in the summer heat. They are grounded in chaos and confusion, relying on that which is not and shall not be. This makes evil and the lot of Bilyal seem almost flimsy, inappropriate as a cosmic mythological opponent to Yahweh. One thing that stands out to me while reading the denouement of the war scroll, fragments to be sure, is that there is no moment dedicated to revealing Bilyal's frustration, his recognition of his own failure. The language is more abstract, mythological, at the climax of the battle, Bilyal joins in the fighting himself, as if sensing that the war has reached an inflection point. Of course, nothing of his psychology or state of mind is really described inside the scroll. We just have to infer that. God's hand then strikes him down, and from that moment on, he seems to be completely forgotten. And this is in keeping with the promise of the war scroll that there will be no remnant left of this lot. This seems to extend even to the dimension of memory. Is this all simply an expression of the sense that while Bilyeu and his minions are powerful temporarily, they only possess that power on loan from God, who is going to sweep them aside like cobwebs when their purpose is served? This seems true to the thought world of the Essenes, but it also shows the emergence of an idea of evil that makes it less of an aggressive antagonist and more of an absence or a lack. Evil starts to lose its demonic physiognomy and becomes more like the gulf of outer space, or even the pull toward the black hole center. Next episode, the Persian connection. One of the ideas hovering in the background of the late ancient Jewish sources we've been covering is that the Babylonian captivity and the subsequent political hegemony of the Persian Empire over Israel influences the development of dualism and apocalypticism in Jewish thought. We're going to spend some time thinking through that idea and see what we can make of it. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch up with you after Thanksgiving. This pod is produced by Infernal Production and is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.